Nothing is so foul that intense light will not make it beautiful. Frost doesn't take sides, but the fact that he can step back and kind of hold it all, contain it all, is to me a kind of divine power. Kind of take on the suffering of the world and to just bear it. Hi everyone. In today's recording, we'll take a close look at Robert Frost's poem, Home Burial. I've been thinking a lot lately about the affirmative powers of art and of poetry, and as I say in this recording, I have this running hypothesis that all art is affirmative, even the bleakest, most tragic, most horrifying works of art, if they are true works of art, and real, lasting, timeless masterpieces, that they will say yes to life, that no true art, if it is great, can be nihilistic or ultimately despairing, no matter how elegiac it is. You know, W.H. Auden says, there is only one thing that all poetry must do. It must praise all it can for being and for happening. Czesław Miłosz, in a great poem called Blacksmith Shop, says that he was put here on earth just for this, to glorify things just because they are. It's easy to look at those statements and think, oh, how beautiful. They're glorifying simple objects, you know. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow. Then we think, what about horrible tragedies? What about death? What about famine? What about war? So much great writing comes out of the most horrific events of life and of history. Do these two affirm life? I wanted to read a little bit of Joseph Campbell here before we dive into the Frost poem. In his book, The Inner Reaches of Outer Space, he makes what I think is a very keen observation about the nature of tragedy. So I want to read a couple paragraphs here. He says, Mr. A shoots and kills Mr. B. What is the secret cause of B's death? Is it the bullet? That is the instrumental, moving, or efficient cause. If we are writing about bullets, we may produce a tract on gun control, but it will not be a proper work of art. Or let us say that Mr. A is a white man and Mr. B a black man. Is the secret cause of B's death racial conflict in the United States? If that is what we are writing about, the product may be an important novel of social criticism, but it will not be properly a tragedy, or even a work of proper art. What then is the secret cause of Mr. B's death? I have chosen the illustration of a black man and a white man with the death in mind specifically of Martin Luther King Jr. on April 4, 1968, and with the brave words in mind that were reported of him shortly before the assassination when he declared that he knew that by persisting in his populist crusade for justice, peace, and righteousness, he was challenging not simply opposition but possible assassination. Yet he pressed on. For here is a clue to the secret cause. In Aristotle's Poetics, tragedy is analyzed as a form of dramatic composition in which the leading character is by some passion or limitation brought to a catastrophe, but every life, either knowingly or unknowingly, is in process toward its limitation in death, which limitation is of the nature of life. Moreover, every significant act sets up a counterfield of resistance in the way of the Buddhist doctrine of dependent origination or mutual arising. Opposites arise by mutual consent, so that the stronger the passion of one, the closer the limitation of the other. Dame Prudence advises care to the principle of limitation, tempering one's passion for life to the imminency of King Death. Here's, I think, really the important part. But the heroic life of deeds and fame is of the one whose passion bends Death's margin to the limit. In a work of improper art, 
such an assassination as that of Martin Luther King would have to be represented either as justified or as reprehensible. In a tragedy, in contrast, it would appear as the culminating revelation of the character and value of a lifetime. And since a work of proper art cannot say nay, but only yea, to life in life's celebration, such a death in high career would be, beyond the sorrow of it, affirmed. And in this affirmation itself, the mind is carried beyond, purged and cleansed from the fear of death. I love this so much. Art is the vehicle in which we take the deaths of innocent heroic characters and affirm them as part of a greater whole, as the culmination of a life. Slightly paraphrasing from a quote of Carl Jung, art, all great art, utters an unconditioned yes to life. You'll hear me quote in this discussion Emerson, who says, No object is so foul that intense light will not make it beautiful. No object is so foul that intense light will not make it beautiful. So today I wanted to take as an example of the way in which art about horror and tragedy and pain, art that looks pain and horror and tragedy straight in the face and doesn't, doesn't try to beautify it, is nevertheless an affirmation that the world does deserve praise and life is worth living. I'm not sure I succeed at this. Who is a tall order I've given myself, I suppose. Home Burial is, as you'll hear, a heart-wrenching poem that does not have a happy ending. But by the end, I tried to come to a place in which I can affirm the consoling power of art and of poetry. This is a recording from a class that I gave a few weeks back. It's a kind of experiment. I'm not sure how many of these I'll do. Just a couple notes about the sound quality. I just recorded this on my phone, so the sound quality isn't perfect, although it's good enough. And when students made comments in class, they weren't very audible, so sometimes I had to cut their comments, which makes me sound like even more of a microphone hog than I normally am. The result is less a discussion and more a kind of lecture, one in which it's slightly scratchy and you can hear pages flipping and stuff, but, but I still hope you get something out of it. I know that putting my thoughts together on this topic has been really beneficial to me. So without further ado, I'll go right into that recording from class about Robert Frost's home burial. I have this theory that it's kind of working hypothesis. All great art, including poetry, is affirmative, that it affirms life, not nihilistic. Even the bleakest, most horrible poems somehow affirm life, say yes to the world. I, I can't prove this. It's just a hunch. I wouldn't want to try to prove it. So uh, what we're going to do today is I'm going to read through this poem, and then we're going to circle back and go to the beginning and read through line by line. If that doesn't kill your soul, such a thought. Um, I, I was taking notes, and you'll see I have something to say about almost every line, but I will pause often and ask you questions. Now, what, I'm, what, what we're going to do is not a deep read. You might think, oh, we're going to do a deep reading of this poem. Maybe you, we could say that this is going to be a deep reading, but I'd prefer to call it a surface surface reading. Because all I'm going to do, all I was doing this weekend in preparation for this was reading the words, looking at the words, and trying to notice things about them. But I want to try to use this poem to kind of put my hypothesis to the test. So I suppose this isn't a totally objective, dispassionate reading, because I want to see if there is something even in this very bleak and depressing poem that we could call affirmative, life-affirming. We'll see. Along the way, of course, we won't just only be doing that. We'll be noticing how a great master poet puts together a poem and why specific words are chosen for specific reasons. So I think first what we'll do is read through it. I was trying to debate to myself, should we read through it? Should I just go line by line and read it all at the end? 
I'm going to read through it. Okay. And then we'll go from the top. I was in the, uh, my wife and I took a, made this kind of pilgrimage before we had kids and we could make pilgrimages. We made a pilgrimage to the Robert Frost farm in Derry, New Hampshire. Has anyone ever been there? This is, they have a, a Robert Frost tried to be a farmer. Kind of was for a while in Derry, New Hampshire, and they have his house preserved there. It has a red floor, painted. The floor is painted red, slightly strange. And telephone, the original telephone is still there, one of those two-part dealios. But apparently it's like, like mounted onto the wall. Robert Frost was very fond of this telephone because he would apparently he wouldn't let anyone else in the house answer it because he wanted to hear voices, other people's voices, because he said he was doing research. How do people talk? He needed to know. He needed to hear. So he was the phone guy. He would always be red floor. And there's a staircase that goes up, red staircase. So when I read this poem, I, I don't think it's autobiographical necessarily, although he and his wife, Eleanor, did have a child who died at four years of age. I always think of that house with the red floor and the red staircase. Adds an even more eerie tone to the whole thing. Home burial. He saw her from the bottom of the stairs before she saw him. She was starting down, looking back over her shoulder at some fear. She took a doubtful step and then undid it to raise herself and look again. He spoke, advancing toward her. What is it you see from up there always? For I want to know. She turned and sank upon her skirts at that, and her face changed from terrified to dull. He said to gain time, what is it you see, mounting until she cowered under him? I will find out now. You must tell me, dear. She, in her place, refused him any help with the least stiffening of her neck and silence. She let him look, sure that he wouldn't see, blind creature. And a while he didn't see. But at last he murmured, oh, and again, oh. What is it? What? she said. Just that I see. You don't, she challenged. Tell me what it is. The wonder is I didn't see at once. I never noticed it from here before. I must be wanted to it, used to it. That's the reason. The little graveyard where my people are. So small the window frames the whole of it. Not so much larger than a bedroom, is it? There are three stones of slate and one of marble, broad-shouldered little slabs there in the sunlight on the side hill. We haven't to mind those, but I understand. It is not the stones, but the child's mound. Don't, 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 she cried. She withdrew, shrinking from beneath his arm that rested on the banister, and slid downstairs, and turned on him with such a daunting look he said twice over before he knew himself, Can't a man speak of his own child he's lost? Not you. Oh, where's my hat? Oh, I don't need it. I must get out of here. I must get air. I don't know rightly whether any man can. Amy, don't go to someone else this time. Listen to me. I won't come down the stairs. He sat and fixed his chin between his fists. There's something I should like to ask you, dear. You don't know how to ask it. Help me, then. Her fingers moved the latch for all reply. My words are nearly always an offense. I don't know how to speak of anything. This is him speaking. I don't know how to speak of anything so as to please you. But I might be taught, I should suppose. I can't say I see how. A man must partly give up being a man with women folk. We could have some arrangement by which I'd bind myself to keep hands off 
anything special you're a mind to name. Though I don't like, though I don't like such things twixt those that love. Two that don't love can't live together without them, but two that do can't live together with them. She moved the latch a little. Don't, don't go. Don't carry it to someone else this time. Tell me about it if it's something human. Let me into your grief. I'm not so much unlike other folks as your standing there apart would make me out. Give me my chance. I do think, though, you overdo it a little. What was it brought you up to think it the thing to take your mother loss of a first child so inconsolably in the face of love? You'd think his memory might be satisfied. There you go, sneering now. I'm not, I'm not. You make me angry. I'll come down to you. God, what a woman. And it's come to this. A man can't speak of his own child that's dead. You can't because you don't know how to speak. If you had any feelings, you that dug with your own hand, how could you, his little grave? I saw you from that very window there, making the gravel leap and leap in air, leap up like that, like that, and land so lightly, and roll back down the mound beside the hole. I thought, who is that man? I didn't know you. And I crept down the stairs and up the stairs to look again, and still your spade kept lifting. Then you came in. I heard your rumbling voice out in the kitchen, and I don't know why, but I went near to see with my own eyes. You could sit there, with the stains on your shoes, of the fresh earth from your own baby's grave, and talk about your everyday concerns. You had stood the spade up against the wall outside there in the entry, for I saw it. I shall laugh the worst laugh I ever laughed. I'm cursed. God, if I don't believe I'm cursed. I can repeat the very words you were saying. Three foggy mornings and one rainy day will rot the best birch fence a man can build. Think of it. Talk like that at such a time. What had how long it takes a birch to rot to do with what was in the darkened parlor? You couldn't care. The nearest friends can go with anyone to death come so far short they might as well not try to go at all. No, from the time when one is sick to death, one is alone. And he dies more alone. Friends make pretense of following to the grave, but before one is in it, their minds are turned and making the best of their way back to life and living people and things they understand. But the world's evil. I won't have grief so if I can change it. Oh, I won't. I won't. There, you have said it all, and you feel better. You won't go now. You're crying. Close the door. The heart's gone out of it. Why keep it up? Amy, there's someone coming down the road. You. Oh, you think the talk is all. I must go somewhere out of this house. How can I make you? If you do. She was opening the door wider. Where do you mean to go? First tell me that. I'll follow and bring you back by force. I will. Utterly heartbreaking, depressing. It's full of fear, grief, sadness, terror. You could even call this kind of nihilistic, her little speech at the end, the world's evil. And I wouldn't want to convince anyone that that would be an inaccurate way of reading this poem. It's, it's a kind of anti-affirmation of life. Yeah? 
That's why I chose it, because it, go, it, it makes the case so well. Maybe the world is evil and life isn't worth living. An, an uninteresting detail about the poem, I suppose, but one maybe that I'll mention anyway, is that it's two country folk in a dialogue. And if you know classical poetry and have read Virgil, you know instantly that this is a classical pastoral poem, mode of poetry called pastoral poetry, in which country people meet and they talk. They talk about life, they talk about the weather, they talk about the seasons and change and death. So I just wanted to say that because American democracy has been highly influenced by the classical world, the Greco-Roman world, but so has American poetry. Robert Frost is directly taking from Virgil and the Roman tradition. I want to read the lines and pause and ask ourselves, what effect is this line having on me? Why were these words chosen and put in this order as opposed to some other order? So again, it's not a deep reading. It's going to be a kind of surface reading. To start with, the first sentence is already, I think, a kind of masterpiece. Why is this first sentence so amazing? I'll start with a question. He saw her from the bottom of the stairs before she saw him. This is already a poem, a complete poem. They're not on the same level, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, physically. And so the drama of the poem is, is staged to, to en enact that, to make that concrete. They're not on the same level. But there is... As, this also slightly menacing, you know what it's like to catch someone noticing you, to notice that someone has been looking at you without you noticing that they've been looking at you. You feel immensely naked, don't you? Yeah? So in a way, he, he kind of, I don't know, there's like a whole Greek drama in this first sentence of suspicion, suspense, threat, surveillance, compulsion, hierarchy, power, tension, right? This is like already in one sentence a powder keg that isn't stable. You know what I mean? I also get this wonderful idea that if he is below her looking up and she's on this elevated plane, what comes to my mind, again, I'm just kind of like using the words of the poem to, to come see what associations come to my mind. This phrase, putting her on a pedestal, you know this phrase, right? He is inventing a version of her. He's got this statue doll-like image of her that he's projecting up there. There's no relation to the actual person. It goes without saying. He saw her from the bottom of the stairs before she saw him. She was starting down, looking back over her shoulder. This is another goodie, isn't it? She's walking down the stairs, but looking back. What effect is it having on you? She's kind of like starting to walk down the stairs, but she's looking back. Slightly weird. Why are we being told that? That's the second thing we're told. That had not occurred to me, that she is moving towards him, but not really. Physically moving towards him, but not mentally or psychologically. Yeah, so there's a kind of approach, but lack of approach. I love that paradox. Janaea? Yeah, I am just worried that she's stuck on something in the past. She can't look forward where she's going. She's stuck on something. I don't want to overread this, but I don't think this is an overreading. That is what grief is. You Time keeps going forward, technically, but you are stuck in the past. If this was a kind of choreography, choreographed play or dance, that movement of her technically going forward but stuck somewhere in the past would be very emblematic of the grieving process. Time keeps going, but you don't. Looking back over her shoulder at some fear. Please tell me why Robert Frost chose that word, some. I've chewed over that word a long time. I'm not sure I've reached any conclusions. Any ideas? Looking back over her shoulder at some fear, not the fear or a fear. It's so vague. I have no answers. Just, I don't know, thoughts? 
the, the husband is trying to, we're kind of in the husband's mind trying to think there's something up there that she is giving her this negative emotion, this something, yeah. She took a doubtful step and then undid it. Again, she's like stuck. She forward motion, but backward staying, you know? She can't move forward. She's emotionally, psychologically stuck. Of course she is. She took a doubtful step and then undid it to raise herself and look again. By now, that look again, we have every right to ask, what is she looking at? I kind of spilled the beans and told you about the Frost's um, loss of their own child. So you kind of knew, maybe. But the poem keeps it unnamed to look again. I just wanted to flag that. to look. At, we, we're, we know she's fixated on something. It's very conspicuous that we're not being told what. He spoke advancing towards it. What is it you see from up there always? That always is an important word, I think. It's doing work. Again, this is a kind of surface-level reading. Well, the word always. What work is this word doing? What is it you see from up there always? It's been going on for a while. There's a backstory. In one word, we get this whole, like, oh, this isn't just today's problem. It's this many days problem. For I want to know. I love how declarative that is. He wants no secrets, no barriers, nothing hidden. He wants total access to her. For I I will now declare my wishes, for I want to know. You will tell me. She turned and sank upon her skirts at that, and her face changed from terrified to dull. Now, this is, to me, still one of the cruxiest, most um, enigmatic moments in the poem. I, I, all I drew next to it on my page was a question mark. From Her face changed from terrified to dull. Please help me. She was terrified. But then when he says, what is it you see from up there always, I want to know, she stops being terrified and her expression becomes dull. The dullness to me, I mean, maybe you're, this is pinging off your souls in a different way, but I read that and think she's bored with something. Any ideas about this? Uh, Bailey. Yeah, well, I just had a baby two months ago. Oh, you did? So oh, like, congratulations. I think it's sorry, it's sorry to inflict this phone yeah, on you. Becoming a mom and like having this child that you both have an attachment to. And like, I know my husband loves our baby, but it's, like, different. When I was, like, when he got his shots for the first time, and I, like, couldn't stop him down. And the baby was fine. Like, he was smiling, heartbeat, driving home. But I was, like, so emotional about it. And then when he, like, tries to understand, sometimes it, like, annoys me. So, like, I can't explain <laughs> it to you. And so, I feel like that dullness is kind of pushing from, like, being inside herself, like, she can feel her emotions, but she can't like explain it to him because there's not really words to do that. And that they've clashed over this inexpressibility so often now that it's become more this again. You still don't get it. It's like I'm bored now with this with this blockage. You know, I like that. I like that. Any other ideas, suspicions, flavors in your mouth while you read this? Yes, Beth. I'm going through the stages of grief. I feel like acknowledging the past and like accepting what really happened and trying to move Oh, I like this. And now I'm going to say something that none of you will be convinced by or interested in. It just occurred to me, it's probably a stupid thing to say, but she's up there. He's on the ground floor. He's down to earth. The dull plane. She's on this level of grief that is, she's detached from the earth. And when we grieve, we don't 
there's a stage of, I don't know anything about the stages of grief, although I've done my share of grieving. We're kind of like floating in the sky, chasing after that lost person. So she's kind of halfway off the earth. The prospect of coming down and living again on the ground, the dull, plain earth where we have to like do the dishes and do the laundry and have chores and the plain routines, it's terrifying dullness. I have to go down to earth again and be a human? That dullness is so terrifying. I don't know. just occurred to me. He said to gain time, sorry for all the pauses, but gain time for what? Again, how do we read poetry? Let me do a kind of meta comment here. It's easy to read this poem. This poem takes about seven or eight minutes to read out loud, to let the words kind of rush through you, and even to have a, a real experience with it, a real experience of awe. I bet that most of you, when I got to the end of my reading, really felt something. That's, there's nothing wrong with just doing that and then moving on with your life. But if you, like, spend an hour with a poem. Let's spend an hour with a poem. Different, more new kinds of things start to happen. So yeah, we're going to be pausing, and maybe you think, oh, let's just, we're stuck like that woman on the stairs. Let's get on with it. This is boring. If we spend an hour with a poem, I think we'll start to notice things. He said to gain time. Gain time for what? It just struck me that this, we're being told that this is a kind of strategy. The way that he speaks is strategic. He has motives for saying certain things. You've been in tense conversations. This isn't yet a full-blown fight, but it's very tense, isn't it? It's a very delicate conversation in which anything could go wrong at any moment. When I'm in those kinds of conversations, what I think I notice about them is that it's not really so much the information, the semantic content of what is said. That's, that's not the level that you're having the conversation on. It's more of a rhythmical construction, aren't they? Those conversations where you're like, okay, it's a matter of pacing. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, I have to be very gentle here and slow, and I'm going to let this pause, and I'm going to use this volume and make this utterance at this particular speed. And it doesn't really matter what I say, but it matters way more how I say it. There's a rhythmical construction being made here. And he, I think he's just kind of like doing this weird dance, rhythmical dance. That's what a conversation is. What is it you see? He's repeating himself. This will become, I think, important. He said to gain time, what is it you see mounting until she cowered under him? There we have it. Very aggressive language. I will find out now. This is not a question. I will. We'll come back to this phrase at the end of the poem. I will find out now. He's not asking her. Insisting. I will find out now. You must tell me, dear. I think that word dear is a stroke of genius on Frost's part. I will find out now. You must tell me, dear. What is the tone of it? What are the tone words we would use to describe it? Daisy? This makes me think of my parents. Whenever they said honey, they'd say honey. You know that some, there's tension in the house when the pet names come out. It wasn't, it wasn't a real pet name. It was, it was like, okay, put on the, um, put on the football padding because we're about to collide. <laughs> so the pet names are the padding so that we can start really butting heads. Yeah, there's something insincere and patronizing about it. I will find out now, you must tell me, dear. She, in her place, refused him any help with the least stiffening of her neck and silence. She let him look, sure that he wouldn't see. See what? You know, We don't know yet. The suspense. He's so good at building suspense. She let him look, sure that he wouldn't see. Blind creature. Whose words are those? Hers, for sure. This is uh, what novelists called free and direct discourse. If they're not in quotation marks, she doesn't say them out loud. They're given to us through the narrator. 
but the narrator for that one second is inhabiting her mind. Very interesting, isn't it? Because as Beth was saying, we begin the poem kind of, the camera is where he is. We begin the poem kind of from his vantage point, but then we switch and we're in her mind. This might make us think that the narrator is on the wife's side, but I think we've already seen that he's kind of switching back and forth between sides. And in fact, one of the miracles of this poem, a point that I want to circle back to at the end, is that the poem doesn't take sides. There's this wonderful letter. I should have excerpted it. Frost writes in a letter to somebody. He is always in awe of, I think he mentions the Greek tragedians, Sophocles, Aeschylus, Euripides, in the way that they can just present reality without taking sides. They can. I think his phrase even is that they can, they can um, present grief without grievances. Grief without grievances. So horrible grief happens to the humans in those Greek tragedies. But they're not just about humans screaming to the gods, life is unfair. It's just very dispassionate, very even-sided. Frost, I think, we'll see as we go through the poem that he doesn't take either spouse's side. Very kind of like balanced, even though he might go back and forth. Blind creature in a while he didn't see, but at last he murmured, oh, and again, oh, what is it? What, she said, just that I see. You don't, she challenged. Tell me what, what it is. Frost had this theory that he called the sound of sense, and his metaphor was that if you put, if you listen to a conversation behind a closed door, you can kind of know the thrust of the conversation without, without even being able to hear the words. Imagine being a kid. Daisy is helping us here. Remember being a little kid and listening to your parents fight from your bedroom? You didn't necessarily know the, the words that were being used. All you heard were certain sound waves, certain volumes, certain pauses certain scary pauses. And again, it's back to that rhythmical construction. You can kind of, oh, they're fighting about that. Oh, and she's got the upper hand. Oh, he, he, he's done something against the rules of the fight. You, can, you know the kind of tone and arc of the fight without any of the actual semantic content. You know what I mean? Oh, and again, oh, what is it? What? Just that I see. You don't. Tell me what it is. These kind of short, choppy, staccato jabs. Tell me what it is. The wonder is I didn't see it once. I never noticed it. Wonderful use of that word, it. It's as if it's unnameable. What does that actually refer to? It's not a trick question. The dead, the, the, the grave. I never noticed that you can see the grave from that window. He just walks up and down. I never noticed it, the unnameable, from here before. I must be wanted to it. That's the reason. The little graveyard where my people are. That word, my, stroke of genius. Somebody read my mind and tell me why. <laughs> A horrible word. Read my mind. One word, my, the little graveyard where my people are. Like, it kind of makes it seem like this is his house, like his ancestors are buried out there. Indeed it is. This is, a, this is an early 20th century farmhouse, 1910s, 20s. They've gotten married. They're newlyweds. This is their first kid. She's moved into his ancestral home where all of the, the parents and the grandparents are buried, my people, all of this is mine. Consciously or unconsciously, he's, she is the outsider. He's got home game advantage. Yeah, I guess would be a sports metaphor. He's got home game advantage. Yeah. The little graveyard where my people are so small, the window frames the whole of it. The graveyard is like a painting on a, the window is like a painting on a wall. He's relating to this graveyard in a very distanced, detached. It's just a painting that I passed. Frames the whole of it. Not so much larger than a bedroom. Now here's where the conversation's going to get weird. Why does he say that? The graveyard is as big as a bedroom. Again, this is not a deep reading. This is a surface level reading. 
he's mentioning that the graveyard, oh yeah, the graveyard, the one that's as big as a bedroom. What? Let's, let's agree to be awkward with each other. What happens in bedrooms? Okay, we'll start with the not awkward one. Sleep. Yeah? To die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream, I, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come. Death is very often compared to sleeping. There's one sense to me is that he's saying, oh, they're just asleep down there. It's just a different kind of bedroom. It's not actually a tragedy. Again, he's not saying this. It's not that he has this like strategically planned. He, don't, he might not mean this, but the poet has put this detail in. What else happens in bedrooms? Well, babies are made. This very child who is now dead was made in their bedroom. Not only was it made in this bedroom, but if this is a farmhouse in the 1920s, it was probably born in that bedroom. It was conceived in that bedroom, it was born in that bedroom, and it just moved to a different spot that's very much like that bedroom. It's such a wonderful line, because the whole cycle of birth and death is collapsed inside of it. Every part of life is just like one more stage of bedroomness, flat, inert, lifeless. Even the creation of life is just, we don't, we're always trapped. It's much larger than a bedroom, is it? There are three stones of slate and one of marble, broad-shouldered little slabs. To me, quite manly thoughts. Stones. Booga booga. Rocks. Yeah? Stuff. I know that's quite stereotypical, um, but I think there's something to that, that he's relating to the world through its materiality. Um, Substances that can be hewn and carved. You know what I mean? Oh, the place with the marble blocks. I mean... Is, is nobody asking themselves, why isn't he saying, oh yeah, my mom, marble slabs. Isn't that weird? We haven't to mind those, but I understand. It is not the stones, but the child's mound. There we have it. He's finally named the thing that has been spoken around, but not about, that has been looked at, stared at, the child's mound. And no sooner does he get the bare naked truth of it out of his mouth, but she it explodes. She can't let this thing be uttered. Don't, 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 she cried. Again, it's not really so much semantics as it is physical. It's a physical use of force to stop this pain. It's just a sound. It's not even a word. It's just a sound. Don't, 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 don't. I love how it, what, what follows it. It's followed by silence, very careful silence. She says this very loud, forceful thing. Don't, 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 don't. And then pause. She withdrew, shrinking from beneath his arm. Very carefully, like, slides under his arm or something. His arm that rested on the banister and then slid downstairs. Very carefully choreographed movement. It's like watching two dogs. Do you know what I mean? From far apart, they'll start barking loudly at each other, then they'll get right up close, and then when they're close, suddenly they kind of freeze. And there's this very gentle dance that they start to do. Have you seen this happen? Like this explosion of energy, and then it's like, what do we do now, yeah? And turned on him with such a daunting look. He said twice over, he's repeating himself. We're, we're being to- told that his mode is repetition. He said twice over before he knew himself, can't a man speak of his own child he's lost? Not you. Oh, where's my hat? Oh, I don't need it. I must get out of here. I must get air. I don't know rightly whether any man can. So her thoughts are kind of zigging and zagging. She kind of starts to answer his question, then thinks of something else, then goes back to answering his question. It's kind of a jumble. I have a question for you. 
I must get out of here. She's been looking at this window for, I don't know how long. We're not told. Many days. A while. Always. She's always looking out this window. So the child is not newly dead. It's newly enough that the grave isn't flat. It's still a mound. But this didn't happen just yesterday. And only now is she saying, I must get out of here. So it's not the grief for her lost child that makes her want to flee. It's something else, right? She's trapped. By what? I, I, this is like, I don't have the answer. I'm not saying, and the answer is, you know, I must get out of the place where I'm stuck. I've noticed I haven't moved forward. Yeah, I'm stuck here. I don't know rightly whether any man can. This is a delayed answer to his question, can't a man speak of his own child he's lost? She makes this gender claim, men and women grieve differently. Maybe we don't like this gender claim, but I think there's probably something to it. My parents lost an infant. She died. Her name was Taryn. She died when she was about six months old. I'm not exactly sure of what. Some neurological disease problem. She started having these seizures. And then she died. And I was rereading, in preparation for this, I was rereading my father's uh, elegy that he gave at the funeral. We have it typed up. Both my parents have passed away. We have saved some things from oblivion. One of these is this, his, this funeral that he gave. I was, I think, maybe one and a half years old, so I have no memory of this. He says in this eulogy, my sister spent a lot of time in the hospital. And uh, he said, we were all there together. And then he says this very interesting thing. He says, we, one of the things we had to do during this period, this, this period of months in which she was dying, is we, we had to learn for ourselves how to grieve. He said, for example, I, I speaking now in the voice of my father, I wanted to be there at the very end when she died. He said, and then he said, I, he, he, it's almost direct, direct quote from the eulogy. I was insistent on that. I wanted to be there at the moment she died. I was insistent on that. And then he goes on to say something like, I thought it would be a treasure. He uses that word. I thought it would be a treasure to be with her in her very last moment. And then he said, Karen, my mom's name, didn't want to be anywhere close to, to her at that moment. So there was some tension there. you know. So my, my mom was at home, grieving, alone. And my dad insisted on being there. And that caused some tension. Mom was left alone in this most horrible of all moments. But the dad needed to be there. So there is something true that like, we have to find our own way. And in finding our own way, we're going to cause tension with other people's ways. I don't know rightly whether any man can. Amy, we get her name. We don't get his name, which makes me think, oh, maybe we're being asked to sympathize more with her. I don't know. Maybe. Don't go to someone else this time. Very interesting detail. What does that mean? It's not a, I won't use the word betrayal. It's not a betrayal, but it would be upsetting if the person closest to you finds that their main source of consolation is not you. Listen to me, I won't come down the stairs, which is wonderful because he's managed to turn a non-threat into a threat. You know what I mean? I won't come down the stairs, which means unless you piss me off, then I will. He sat and fixed his chin between his fists, a wonderful detail from the poet. Why is our attention being uh, drawn to his fists? I think for obvious reasons. It's like a boxer, yeah? He's doing this with his fists like a boxer. This is a fight. Maybe he's used his fists literally in the past. It's a detail in her world that she's now seeing, you know, fists. There's something I should like to ask you, dear. You don't know how to ask it. Help me then. Her fingers move the latch for all reply, right? She's kind of in a cage. She's trying to open the door of the cage. My, then he's speaking. My words are nearly always an offense. I don't know how to speak of anything so as to please you. I love that line break. I don't know how to speak of anything 
think, oh, yeah, you don't because you're an idiot man. But I think we're about to learn later in the poem that that's not true. He actually does know how to speak. He has his own language. It's quite a sophisticated language. It's just not her language. So that's why the line break gives us so as to please you. But I might be taught, I should suppose. I can't say I see how. A man must partly give up being a man with women folk. And this weirdly Victorian, evasive euphemism, I think about sex, right? We could have some arrangement by which I'd bind myself to keep hands off anything special you're a mind to name. You know, like, I'm not going to insist on anything that you don't want to do. And then this horribly elephantine, awkward phrase, like the ugliest phrase in the whole poem, just poetically speaking, though I don't like such things for those that love, two that don't love can't live together without them, and two that do can't live together with them. It takes like five minutes to even understand the grammar of that sentence. So in a way, he is a kind of bumbling. He, he doesn't have the words that he wants to have or needs to have. She moved the latch a little. <laughs> Get me out of here. Don't, don't go. Don't carry it, it, to someone else this time. Tell me about it if it's something human which is so wonderful. If it's something human, what's being referred to here? He's kind of a creature. He's, he's kind of lost his humanity in some degree. And for him, she's acting in a way that is totally alien. I don't know if what you're experiencing is human, because it's not what I'm experiencing. But let me into it. I also love that the fact that the boy who has died is human. If it's something human. It's like, well, of course it is. But he sees, he's acknowledging in that moment that she has an, an inf- infinite inaccessible grief that he never has access to outside of his can completely. I'm not so much. Let me into your grief, not our grief, your grief. We have separate griefs. I think this is true. Let me into your grief. I'm not so much unlike other folks as you're standing there apart. Make me out. Give me my chance. These next lines are where he falls. I'm not going to say that she wins, but in this moment he loses. I do think though you overdo it a little. What was it brought you up to think at the thing to take your mother loss of a first child so inconsolably in the face of love? Can you imagine a more horrible thing to say? It's a wonderfully compacted offense. He's offending her in multiple ways in the sentence. What was it brought you up? So it's not, you're not, it's not just you that's a problem. It's your whole family. They brought you up wrong. You know, let's drag in her family just for meanness sake. What was it brought you up to think of the thing? It's like the fashionable thing or the polite thing. This isn't how polite people grieve. So he's reducing grief to like a, a, set, a set of procedures. It's not the proper thing. To take your mother loss. That's offensive too, isn't it? Because he overgeneralizes her particular grief. It's not hers. In his mind, it's not hers. It's like, oh, this is what women have to go through. This is general woman problem. And that kind of reduces it to this general thing as, as opposed to like, no, this is... This isn't just a generic problem, a generic off-the-shelf problem. This is mine. In the face of love, like, I love you, so shouldn't that be enough? Love is not all, as Edna St. Vincent Millay reminded us. Love is not all. There are some wounds that are so deep that it doesn't matter what other sources of love you have. There you go sneering now. I'm not, I'm not. You make me angry. I'll come down to you so the threats become more explicit. God, what a woman. And it's come to this. A man can't speak of his own child that's dead. So he, he's now lost. He, he said the unsayable, and he's lost all of the moral high ground, if he ever had any. And I think that's why he ends up repeating himself, because he's now at a dead end. He's at his moral and psychological and emotional dead end. So he goes back to the beginning. A man can't speak of his own child that's dead. 
That's like the end of his his journey. Now, she has the moral high ground for a moment, but I think the poet doesn't take sides. Watch her fall off of it. You can't speak of your own child because you don't know how to speak. If you had any feelings, you that dug with your own hand, how could you? His little grave. I think this is an equal offense from her side. Why do I say this? You that dug with your own hand, how could you? His little grave. She can't say this to him. Who else is going to dig the grave? They're poor. Graves in the yard. What are they going to do? Not bury this child? He has to dig the grave. So for her to say, how could you? It's like, how could I not? You want me to leave it in the living room? The corpse? You want me to leave the corpse in the living room? I saw you from that very window there. This this next scene is so bizarre to me. Here's my question. I'm going to read this little scene. And my question is, why is this the scene of trauma for her? This is clearly the scene that has branded in her brain as the moment of trauma, not the moment of the child's death, because this is the scene that she's obsessively reliving again and again and again. My question is why? Why this and not the child's death? I saw you from that very window there, making the gravel leap and leap in air, leap up like that, like that, and land so lightly and roll back down the mound beside the hole. I thought, who is that man? I didn't know you. And I crept down the stairs and up the stairs to look again. So she doesn't want to see it, but she can't stop looking. And still your spade kept lifting. It's like a court deposition. Then you came in. What happened next? Then you came in. Step by step, frame by frame. She's taking us through it. I heard your rumbling voice out in the kitchen. And I don't know why, but I went near to see with my own eyes. She's telling us, this is the moment of my trauma. You could sit there with the stains on your shoes of the fresh earth from your own baby's grave and talk about your everyday concerns. You had stood the spade up against the wall outside there in the entry, for I saw it. What is the nature of this trauma? It's strange, isn't it? She's not reliving the moment of the baby's death. She saw something in the husband and about the husband that she cannot stand. She can't take. How can you get up and do anything? How can you dig a hole, you know, with this kind of grief, Beth? I think that she views him almost, for lack of a better word, I guess, like, psychopathically. The part where it says that you can sit there with the stains on your shoes of the fresh earth from your own baby's grave, that makes me think of, like, crime dramas where they catch a murderer who he has. And, and then just talking about, once again, the everyday concerns makes him seem so callous. Like, how dare you not feel this as deeply as I do? When she's already acknowledged earlier that they... Yeah. Um, I love this detail about the shovel. A farmer who has, has just dug a hole wouldn't be stupid enough to bring the shovel into the house. It's a soil-stained shovel. And she says, I saw you bring it into the house. I saw it. What does she interpret that action to mean? It's very uncharacteristic of you. You don't bring dirty shovels into the house. I'll go out on a limb. He's, a, he's not her husband anymore. He's a, he's a grave digger. He is the grim reaper. And instead of a scythe, he has a shovel. The shovel is a tool of death. And he has brought it into the house, maybe just because he's not thinking, because he also is grieving. So he's not in his right mind. Brought it into the house, maybe by accident. Has leaned it up in the entry. And she, she looks at it and says, I'm next. I'm living now in a house all alone with the Grim Reaper. And there is his scythe. Maybe that's too big of a stretch for you. If it is, you can just ignore it. But she fixates on that weapon. Weapon. I accidentally said weapon on that tool. It hurts her to see it there. I don't have him anymore because he's this monster who doesn't kill babies, but 
digs babies' graves. And he's, he doesn't know what to say. He just does his own repetition thing. I shall laugh the worst laugh I ever laughed. I'm cursed. God, if I don't believe, I'm cursed. She keeps talking as if she's talking to herself. I can repeat the very words you were saying. This is his everyday concerns. But again, she's misinterpreted him. I can repeat the very words you were saying. Three foggy mornings and one rainy day will rot the best birch fence a man can build. Think of it. Talk like that at such a time. What had how long it takes to a birch to rot to do with what was in the darkened parlor? There's a direct answer to that question. I'll answer it. It has everything to do with what was in the darkened parlor. What is he thinking about when he says, birch wood takes this long to rot? He's only thinking about one thing, that boy's coffin. In this many days, he will be exposed to all of the elements, all of the animals, all of the insects. He's as stuck in his own way as she is. But he speaks in these kind of like proverbs. He's like he's reading farmer almanacs, you know? So he speaks in these kind of metaphors, and she doesn't know that they're metaphors for deep inner pain. So he, he just has a different language than her. You couldn't care. She thinks she's alone. And I guess she is. She's not wrong to think this. You know that tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, the Macbeth speech? Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage. And then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. I think this bit is in Frost's mind when he writes what's coming. The nearest friends can go with anyone to death come so far short that they might as well not try to go at all. No, from the time when one is sick to death, one is alone, and he dies more alone. Friends make pretense of falling to the grave, but before one is in it, their minds are turned and making the best of their way back to life. You remember, if you read the Iliad, there's this wonderful moment, Patroclus is Achilles' best friend, and Patroclus gets killed. Achilles is so overwhelmed with grief that he stops eating, stops doing everything, stops bathing, stops fighting, stops eating. And even after Patroclus' funeral, he's still not eating. Eventually his mother, Thetis, who is the sea nymph, kind of goddess, comes, comes to him and says, eat. You are not dead. Eat food. And this will make you squirm, but she even says to them, I find it so beautiful, she even says to make love to a woman. Do a thing that you can only do with bodies, because you still have one. You're not dead like your friend. You are in the world of the living. You have to stay there. You can't follow your friend to the grave. So when we grieve, we often think, how dare I live? How dare I remain alive? How dare I eat a sandwich? That's why I think I love it that we have a food at funerals, you know, because we have we go do the crying and then we eat. It's like, oh yeah, we get to eat. We get to eat. But she's not at that mind stage yet. She's still at the stage where it's like, no, I'm not going to turn back to life. I'm not going to turn back to life or living people. The world's evil. The world's evil. I won't have grief so if I can change it. Oh, I won't, I won't. There, you have said it all. He thinks, if it just comes out of her, you know, it'll be better. You won't go now. You're crying. Close the door. The heart's gone out of it. Why keep it up? Amy, there's someone coming down the road. Again, he's quite concerned with looks here. I love what comes next. You. Please tell me this mode of speech. What is that mode of speech? It's not information delivery. 
You. It's like a sound that you make at someone when what? You hate them? You think the talk is all. I must go. No, look at all the dashes. Why are there one, two, three, four, five, six dashes in the last five lines? Because communication is over. I must go somewhere out of this house. If How can I make you? If you do. She was opening the door wider. Where do you mean to go? First tell me that. I'll follow and bring you back by force. I will. I love this I will because almost her last word is I won't. It's just a few lines up. I won't. I won't. So she has been wounded by the world. Her reaction to that wound is to say, no. I'm going to say no to the world. I reject the world. The world's evil. He has been also wounded, very deeply wounded. His reaction is, okay, if the world's going to do that to me, I'm going to bend it to be whatever I want it to be. I'm going to force it. Be my way. I will, you know. These are equally kind of like, they're kind of opposite ways to grieve, but equally kind of disastrous. What is the point? I did kind of tease you with a, a hypothesis that there's still something affirmative about this. If you give me 90 more seconds, I might be able to do this. There's this wonderful Emerson detail where his wife died. A, month, a year and a half later, he goes, she's buried in an above-ground tomb. He goes to the tomb and opens the coffin. And he goes home and he writes in his journal. This is all that he writes in that day. This is the entire entry. I visited Ellen's tomb and opened the coffin. That's it. There's another moment in his, in his essays where he says, no object is so foul that intense light will not make it beautiful. Imagine Emerson looking at this corpse. No object is so foul that intense light will not make it beautiful. Years later, his son dies. They bury his son. Fifteen years after his son's funeral, he does the same thing. Opens the coffin of his son just to look at it. He wants to know. He wants to see. Nothing is so foul that intense light will not make it beautiful. What is my take on this poem? It goes back to this balance. Frost doesn't take sides. He doesn't say the wife is better at grieving. He doesn't say the husband is better at grieving. They're both kind of equally horrible at grieving. But the fact that he can step back and kind of hold it all, contain it all, he can just see it all, is to me a kind of divine power to kind of take on the suffering of the world and to just bear it, to just look at it, like Emerson, just look at it, just look at the suffering. Emerson's claim is that nothing is so foul that intense light will not make it beautiful. Before you leave, sorry for the lateness, I just want to remind you of this Rilke poem that I've already read to you. Yes, horrible things happen in the world, but just to contain them, just to like hold it in your hands and say, look at that horrible thing, is itself a kind of an affirmation or a kind of redemption. This is a poem by Rilke called Autumn. The leaves are falling, falling as from far away, as if distant gardens withered in the skies. They fall with gestures saying no. And in the nights, the heavy earth falls from a multitude of stars into aloneness. We are all falling. The, the wife in this poem is right. To die is the most alone thing. Even if you're surrounded by loved ones, they don't die with you. You, are, you will be alone. We are all falling. This hand is falling. And look at the others. It's inside them all. And yet there's one who with infinite tenderness holds this falling in his hands. Called the witness of the suffering. Emerson or Frost or God. You know, to say, I see it. It's being held. Oh, immensely beautiful.
Well, I hope you enjoyed that, despite the subpar sound quality. Did I manage to cement this poem on the side of affirmation? I'm not sure. I gave it my best shot, and hope you enjoyed it.